The Lord has sent his visitation upon us. Quiet! You shall all perish in the greatest agony. You who stand there with your gaping jaw and vacant stare. And you over there, your nose held high in proud disdain. Are you aware of the fact that your burial hour is upon you? Death stands right behind you. I can see his white skull reflecting the sun. His scythe is gleaming as he lifts it above your heads. Which of you will he strike first? <laughs> you there, with your big nose and your eyes goggling like a goat. Tonight, as the sun sets over the earth, will your last yawn freeze on your face forever? And you over there, Woman, your teeming flesh, a witness to your lust. <laughs> Will you wither and fade away before the dawn? And you there, with your fat red cheeks and your belly swollen with gluttony. <laughs> Six months from now, will you still pollute the earth? Or will worms be feeding on you? All of you, sinners and fools, get down on your knees. You are going to die. Today, or tomorrow, or the next day, but none of you can escape. You are damned! Every single one of you! You are damned! Damned! Welcome to Wayward Episode 7. I'm Kent. I'm Zeb. And I'm Mark. And today we're following up um, on our kind of um, series of episodes where we're interviewing one another to get a sense for our backgrounds and where we're coming from and stuff like that. And we're going to be interviewing Zeb today. So uh, why don't we start off, uh, you can introduce yourself a little bit. Um, like, who are you? Where do you live? What are you up to? What's your story? Sure, Yeah. So I live in Western Pennsylvania. I'm 38 and I am married. I've got four kids from the ages of 12 to seven months. I run a business that I started about eight years ago selling produce from, for a group of Amish organic vegetable farmers um, throughout Western Pennsylvania and the Mid-Atlantic region. And I'm a Byzantine Catholic, which I transferred over to from having been a Roman Catholic. I transferred when I was, I forget now, maybe 28 to 30, somewhere in there. Um, just about a year or two before I got married. I got married when I was 30. Very cool. So uh, who would have consumed produce that you've uh, you handled the distribution for? Oh, our biggest customer is Whole Foods. And so anybody who's bought produce in a Pittsburgh Whole Foods would surely have seen our stuff. But also some of our stuff has been distributed as far south as like, I believe Lexington, Kentucky, we've gotten feedback from and New York City, um, probably a good bit around the Washington, D.C., Baltimore area. 
because we send a lot of our stuff to the Whole Foods distribution center uh, that's close to DC. So, so how did you get to the point where you were doing this, working with these Amish farmers? Well, um, just to start the, that story right before I was there, I was 26 or 7, and I was trying to start an organic farm on my dad's land. He has uh, an old dairy farm that he bought back in the 70s to try to do a dairy farm on and hadn't been for quite a few, well, a couple decades. So I was trying to do organic produce there, and one of my college roommates who was doing a milk delivery business in the Pittsburgh area had become acquainted with this Amish community up here in uh, sort of northeast of Pittsburgh a ways, and they needed somebody to carry their produce to their markets, their customers down in the Pittsburgh area. And he was doing that when he could on his milk truck, but then he did somebody more full-time. So initially, it was just going to be a part-time summer job that we would rent a truck, and two or three days a week, I'd run over there and take a lot of produce down to the city for them. But it quickly became like a every day of the week, 80 hours a week job. <laughs> and I also started doing sales calls and some bookkeeping for them because they'd been just kind of doing things on a loose informal basis for the most part. And so after a successful season of doing that, they were so happy to have a lot of the headaches of arranging transportation and sales taken off their hands that they asked my friend and me to build a new warehouse for them to operate out of and to sort of take over all of the transportation and marketing stuff, take that off their hands and to create an identity to sell it all under sort of an umbrella or a brand rather than having it just be sold under one, one of the farmer's names as it had been. Mm. So that's how we got started with them. And for the first year, I was driving from my dad's farm an hour to the Amish farms to then to pick up the produce and then take it to the markets. But after a year of doing that, that's when I got married and... We moved right by the warehouse that we built because the job was so all-consuming. And so far, that's all I've been doing since then is uh, selling other people's produce rather than doing any of my own farming. Um, so obviously, um, that world of, uh, of organic farming and all of that is very important to you. Um, what's your background? Did you grow up uh, in that kind of world? Uh, sort of. I mean... My, like I said, my dad bought his farm right. in the 70s, and he'd grown up on a dairy farm in southeastern Pennsylvania. Um, and his dad, I guess, had been had tried at one point to get into the really beginning of the organic agriculture movement back in the 50s mm. when it was just starting to become a thing because chemical agriculture was just starting to become a thing. So my dad had some interest in it, and when he moved up to western Pennsylvania, he brought a bunch of his – he was a hippie back at that time and brought a bunch of his hippie friends and tried to sort of start a uh, informal sort of quasi-communal thing there on the farm. And so they had some of those same goals. And for a while, he was a distributor of organic fertilizer and stuff. But that all fell apart, you know, as most of those dreams did for that generation after a few years. So by the time I came around and that was my dad's second marriage um, into which I was born. He wasn't farming for a living anymore, but he still had the farm and he still had about 30 dairy cows, which he just kept, I think, because he didn't have the heart to get rid of them. And maybe part of him thought he was going to be able to get back to it. 
But in the meantime, he'd become a lumberjack, which he still is now. And so <laughs> he never made any money. I'm sure he lost quite a bit of money keeping the farm up for a few years just as a sort of sideline. But so I was raised with farming uh, to an extent. My dad's farm, you know, we made hay and moved fence and took care of animals and stuff. But it was never for a living. But then I also would visit his brother's farm, which and my, and my grandparents, until they died, his three brothers stayed on the home farm and continued to run the dairy. And so I really loved being there and working with them um, and came to sort of idolize the farm life. And after trying or thinking about a few different career paths and at one point trying to get into seminary right out of high school and that not working out, I settled on agriculture as what I thought my calling was and what I was most interested in. So I went to Penn State to study agriculture, thinking that I would um, learn whatever like the sort of new science of agriculture was and then try to apply that to uh, an organic style of farming. I wasn't aware that there, in the meantime, over the 80s and 90s, had, had grown up quite a subculture of organic agriculture. And in, in the 90s, late 90s, it was starting to develop into a real um, significant business and economic presence in America, but in small town, western Pennsylvania, like there was no way that you would ever know that. But being at college, I came into contact with that world. And so through some internships and trying to seek out some of the younger, newer faculty who were interested in that kind of thing, I got more involved in the contemporary organic agriculture movement. And uh, that's what I tried to bring back to my dad's farm. So I'm curious um, how that fits in with your um, religious and political positions. And I'm, I'm also curious in what direction that influence flows, uh, if that makes any sense. You know, whether that experience informs um, your your spirituality or your political commitments or vice versa. Yeah, that's something that's really evolved. My political commitments especially have changed a lot since I first started to think about farming as one of the possible career paths I was interested in. And um, sort of because of the nostalgia, probably, that comes with the way I was introduced to farming and seeing how my grandparents and my uncles farmed and how my dad talked about growing up with farming. I started out as politically conservative, more in reaction against um, the modern life and contemporary culture and what seemed to be sort of the nonsensical and absurd elements of liberalism that I was seeing in the, in the 90s in the world when I was starting to pay attention a little bit to the news and politics. And to be honest, the, um, the rise of Rush Limbaugh in the 90s had a big impact sure. on me. And he was just the first person who I'd ever heard talk about politics in a way that wasn't extremely tame and boring. And also <laughs> was completely willing to call people out for being stupid and to uh, be mocking and sort of aggressive. So that won me over right away just because of the tone. But oh, then... Sometime in high school, I guess maybe ninth grade, I decided I ought to try reading through the Gospels, and I immediately realized that uh, a lot of the things Limbaugh was saying were completely uh, antithetical to what I was reading that Jesus was saying. So I moved from being what I thought was a pretty standard 
conservative Republican stance to being a kind of Christian anarchist, but in a more sort of libertarian stance. Um, and I guess that's about where I was when I went to Penn State. Um, so at that time, I was thinking, I'm going to learn, like I said, learn the science of agriculture, but then come back home and try to farm in a way that's in harmony with the goodness of nature as God created it, rather than in a combative relationship with it, which is how conventional agriculture seemed to me. But I also thought that it was, I was going to be sort of like inventing that style of farming as a new way of life, not realizing, like I said, that it was already a, a going concern and a growing thing in America. Um, but then at school, I came into contact with a lot of different forms of social activism and Christian-oriented social activism through groups like Pax Christi, um, opposing war and death penalty stuff, and also through some secular organizations and activities, like I got real involved in Amnesty International. So I started to develop more of a uh, social conscience and a realization that I couldn't just um, pursue personal virtue and a good way of life and leave everything else to God, but that I had a responsibility. And so the, my vision for the farm life that I was pursuing sort of changed along with that. And was also very influenced by coming into contact with the Catholic worker movement while in school during, for um, the Catholic campus group would do service trips to a Catholic worker house in Harrisburg. And so reading some of the things that Dorothy Day and Peter Marin wrote and their own views about what they called the Green Revolution before that term referred to the mass application of chemicals and agricultural technology to uh, grain yields. They were thinking of it as a way to rejuvenate the culture of, of workers and bring them back into touch with a more natural, natural way of life and into touch with God's creation. And so what I started to dream of was something sort of influenced partly by the monastic tradition of monks working and praying and living on the land and in harmony with it um, from having read Thomas Merton's writings and other Trappist stuff um, and Benedictine monastic writing, as well as the social aspect of Dorothy Day's Catholic worker vision. And so I thought what I wanted to do was have uh, a place where others who felt the same way about how one ought to farm and how one ought to relate to the rest of society, both in terms of the injustice and violence of the state and of capitalism and in the sort of outreach of a, an evangelization that's not purely uh, preaching, but really bearing the love of Christ to all people. I thought there might be some way that I could incorporate that into my vision of, of the farm life that I was going to pursue. And so that's what I was thinking and not really knowing how in the world that could possibly happen. But that was all sort of in my mind when I finally did come to, back to the farm uh, when I was 26 or 7, like I said. Um, after college, I did a year of volunteering with Capuchin Franciscans in Detroit where they had an urban farming program. So I worked on the urban farm there, which the produce was, some of it was sold at farmer's markets, but a lot of it was went right into, into their soup kitchen where the ministry was based out of. So I was spending a lot of time 
in the neighborhood and in the soup kitchen with the poor there. And then I moved to Philadelphia to just to sort of get a little more experience of urban life before I finally settled back down and got cloistered in a way <laughs> in a rural world. I wanted to see a little more of the urban life, so I moved to Philly with some friends and started working in a homeless shelter run by the church there. Um, and came to see the ways that I thought that people, both the poor and everybody in general, but especially those two who work for and with the poor in places like homeless shelters and Catholic worker houses of hospitality, might need a way and a chance to get out into nature and to work in a farming or agricultural place. So that became part of the, another part of the vision, you know, like sort of a retreat, a place of retreat that wasn't exactly monastic, more of a working farm for where there were families living, not just celibates, but kind of a mix of all these influences were sort of brewing in my mind, um, not knowing how to realize them, but trusting that if I go out there and if it's God's will, somehow it will come to be. I feel like if you had been the one to write the Benedict Option, I've been much more likely to read it, <laughs> having heard that. <laughs> yeah, well, I think there's a lot of Benedict Option books still to be written by other people. Um, <laughs> Roger did one version of it. I think there needs to be more. So I've I've seen you refer to yourself as a left distributist, which is the first place I heard the term. I don't know if you coined it. Uh, <laughs> no. <laughs> okay, good. Uh, so what uh, what is that? mean in your thinking um you know people i i've i've seen the take that distributism um is is fundamentally a kind of reformist capitalism um mm-hmm. uh, so in 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 your what what leads you to kind of uh look for a confluence and kind of uh leftist thought and distributist thought if you do i don't know you've uh you seem to have recently uh turned a corner <laughs> on that <laughs> yeah I can, I can explain that a little bit but yeah um, just talk about politics yeah, well, so like I was saying, I started out in early high school as a Republican, but quickly became a pacifist because of reading the Gospels, and so an anarchist, and but more of a libertarian-leaning one. And the thing that I couldn't really figure out was how property related to that. And I didn't really ever figure that out until fairly recently reading, writing of, of Matt Bruning, his blogs really opened my eyes to what pacifism and anarchism and libertarianism means for property, but um, by that time I'd already left all that behind. So anyway, um, it was an unresolved question to me about how property ought to be treated by whatever the just form of government would be. And like I said with the farming dream, I really, in a lot of ways, looked to the Benedictine tradition and the monasteries that I would visit on retreats as a ideals of social organization. And so when I did still identify as an anarchist, I thought um, a Benedictine monastic version of voluntary poverty, but where there was property owned in common and allocated without state violence or coercion, but allocated by the community or the leadership of the community according to need and according to wise prudence. So I didn't know how that would relate to actually changing like existing governments, but at least maybe setting up alternative voluntarily uh, submitted to governance in community 
whether it's actual vowed monastic community or something like what the Catholic worker farms had tried to be and are trying to be where they still exist or other sort of semi-monastic communities that are open to families. And that's what I thought kind of was the only solution was a voluntary sort of socialism where anyone who wanted to be a part of it would and would submit their property rights to the community or to the leadership. Um, and that remained unresolved for me and really for all through my twenties. Um, so I had moved kind of left, I guess, in how I thought things ought to be, but not in terms of an agenda of how people ought to actually do anything other than conduct their personal lives. And I really was thinking that that was the only correct form of progress or revolution was on a person-by-person basis, nonviolently through personal conversion. And I had the, the hope that by the providence of God and people's cooperation with it, one by one, we might just start to turn that corner and move in that direction. And if a few people would be really radical in leading the way, people like the, the Dorothy days of the world, others would follow and eventually it might accumulate a, a critical mass to really changing the way things are. But in the last maybe only just five years, probably have I realized that that doesn't really comport with what the Catholic church teaches about what the state is or has to be and the duty that we have to ensure justice and the validity of the state as a, not as a sort of artificial creation of, of man, but as a natural um, result of people living in community with each other, that the state is an, or some sort of state, some sort of polity anyway, not the modern notion of the nation state, but some sort of political entity is a natural thing and it's a natural good and has duties to regulate life and, and regulate property. Um, a lot of my thinking was clarified when, by chance, I came upon Pope John Paul II's encyclical, and I never get the name of this right, it's the um, 100-year anniversary of Rerum Novarum, and because it's in Latin, I always get the endings of the words wrong, Centissimus Anno or something like that. Anyway, 100 years in English would be the translation, where he addresses the history of Catholic social teaching up to that point and very specifically delineates that there is a right to private property. And so the sort of communism that denies that is wrong and cannot be subscribed to by a Catholic, but that that right to private property is for all people. And so sort of capitalism that concentrates property productive property in only a few hands is also anti-Catholic or against Catholicism, is condemned by Catholicism. And if you have the right to property, so it can't be all collectivized, but it also can't be concentrated, which it always is and inevitably becomes in capitalism, then the only solution if the state's going to ensure justice is for the state to constantly be redistributing private property. And so that's where I, that's where the left distributism comes from. Distributism is an idea that every person ought to own the means of his own production, that it shouldn't be owned collectively. So it goes against the sort of absolute collectivist communist 
view. But it also, like Pope John Paul II said in that encyclical, says that every person ought to own the means of his production. And so nobody should just be a wage laborer where they're working using somebody else's property and the property owners extracting the, the profits from that without putting any labor into it, without really participating in the production. So I ascribe to distributism, thinking that the ideal is for everyone, everyone to own the means of their own production. And the left part of it is a recognition that the state has a role to redistribute that productive property rather than the right distributists who are basically libertarian and think that the market can do this um, and the state should not interfere. That's what the left that I had subscribed to rejects. And I recently <laughs> took the left out of my bio simply because I've become so annoyed with people who are calling themselves leftists and what that has come to mean, at least on Twitter, <laughs> that I just don't, don't want to be uh, thought to be a part of what those guys are going for, what, both on the, the secular leftists and even uh, the people, <laughs> some of the more uh, outspoken Christian leftists. Uh, it's really just a petty thing. They were annoying me, so I took that out of there. <laughs> but as far as it goes, I still think the state has to redistribute property in a just, for a just um, could, politics. Could we actually... Um just for people who might not be familiar with some of the terms, could you distinguish between uh, private property and personal property for people who might be confused? Yeah, well, I'm not sure if I can technically correctly. I'm not super well-versed in um, anything. But what I mean when I say those things, private property would be, is by that I just mean productive property, the means mm -hmm. of production, so capital, whether it's a factory or land or even... Um, things like mineral rights or intellectual property rights, all that kind of thing. Anything that where the title is granted by the state and gives you exclusive either right to use or right to claim the profits from the use of productive mm -hmm. resources. Personal property is just all the stuff that you have in your life. Um, your, your own possessions. I, some might, there might be some debate about things like your car or your house, I, I certainly wouldn't debate those. Those would, be, those would be personal property in my mind. And and again, I think that people have a right to both personal and private property, just not a right to exclude others from either of those, actually. Mm -hmm. No, I just, I, I know I have people who aren't used to necessarily, you know, like Marxist terminologies, mm -hmm. hearing private property and thinking that that means that, you know, someone can come into your house and just like, take your books. Like, that. that's not... That's not exactly the concern. Um, right. And yeah, establishing, you know, private property is really about uh, more or less your your means of livelihood. I'm in that um, Rerum Navarum reading group um, in uh, Catholic Twitter. Um, and like it, it, some parts of it are hard for me, um, in part because certainly, you know, a lot of things have changed and, you know, the number of people who don't necessarily make a living with tangible means of production. Mm -hmm. Like I survive by making sure, you know, books and websites don't fall apart. An institution that owns those materials basically, you know, pays me for the service of protecting and maintaining them. 
and the the expansion i think of essentially the service industry has really changed some of the perspectives um you know written at the time of uh of leo when he wrote ram of arm and whatever year that was yeah yeah one well, like um like Chris Arnotti pointed out in the interview that we did with him, the ascendant class in America now, the front row, maybe classes mm-hmm. if we're involving Marx in the discussion, but anyway, the ascendant group in America, the front row kids, for the most part, don't make money and don't achieve their economic or cultural dominance through owning productive property. Right. It's through status and education. And those are, th- so that's one of the things that kind of, bothers me i mean probably the main reason (laughs) that i instinctively am not that kind of like total communist and Mm -hmm. and really bristle at that is is my love of family farms honestly and any system that would deprive a farmer of the authority and relationship that he has over the land that he works on i just can't get with but it's especially like anachronistic now to talk about collectivizing property physical property when farmers, even if they own the hundred or thousand acres or whatever it is that they're trying to scratch out a living on, are on almost the bottom rung of society and professors or whatever, middle managers, lawyers who don't own any productive property other than a computer maybe are, you know, so much higher on the ladder. So mm-hmm. I think that kind of analysis is is, is really anachronistic and is perpetuates a, a power differential that I really am against interesting so what would be uh we'll call it a five-year plan to creating a more just society and your sort of distributist uh and distributist model like what 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 would you want to see changed if you were if you were in charge of the government and all branches (laughs) well do you mind if we start with um uh, I, I'd like to get to that, but I, I think maybe – would you mind if we start with what you think uh, like your distributist praxis looks like? And then we can move to uh, uh, you know, if you had immediate control over all branches of government. Yeah, Can sure. we start sure. small and move big? Does that make sense? Yeah. Well, so I mean some things really haven't changed since I was 17 or so. I still do want to – get back out on the farm. I'd like to find some way to not be actually running my business anymore. And I want to be farming and I want other people to farm with me. And I still don't know what that will look like. And it will just depend on what opportunities arise and who I can find who might be interested in pursuing something like that. But, um, I mean, all through my twenties, I very seriously discerned about whether I had a monastic vocation after my attempt at a diocesan priestly vocation was shut down immediately. Um, and getting married, of course, answered the question about the monastic vocation, but I still feel a real strong calling to something like that way of life centered on prayer and liturgy. So I'd like to find a way to do that with my family and with other people who would like to live the same way. And so as a distributist, um, I mean, I'm still really interested in the same kind of voluntary associations. Probably not so much the the giving up of our of private property. I think that's a little too idealistic and radical to expect of families who are not in a vowed relationship with each other the way monks are. But 
having worked these eight years now very closely with the Amish and having lived with Amish as my only neighbors the whole time and just spending all of my time every day interacting with them and observing them and asking them questions on long drives and stuff, I've learned a lot about how they organize their life in their communities in a way that really is like an alternative polity where they follow the laws of the land wherever they are, more or less. I mean, they're willing to push back on things that they disagree with or or that they just think are unreasonable. Um, but they otherwise stay pretty much uninvolved in politics. Most of the Amish are for, forbidden to vote. It goes community mm -hmm. by community there. Their own local bishop can decide what the rules are for the particular community, but for the most part, they are forbidden to vote. And so they work it out among themselves what their rules of life are, how much they share with each other in terms of like materially as well as their struggles and uh, everything in their life, really. And so observing them really has kept me Desiring something like that where I would form with other people some sort of voluntary community of mutual support that is material as well as cultural and religious and neighborly, I guess. I've recently become very interested in, in worker-owned cooperatives as a business model, and that's the direction I would really like for this business that I've started to go in. Um, and I think that's the, so there's basically two ways for business to work under a distributist system. One is the single owner business, like a farmer or a, a small shop owner or whatever. And the other is a worker owned cooperative. And that movement is really growing or all around the world right now, the worker owned cooperative. And there's a lot more of them than I was ever aware of until I read this, this book um, called the companies we keep really interesting book written by a guy who has started a house building company, an idealistic hippie in the seventies on Martha's Vineyard, started this house building company. It became very successful. And in the eighties converted it into a worker-owned cooperative. So this book tell, is him telling his story and how that's progressed and how it continues to, to evolve. And then he also investigates a few other businesses, some of them equally idealistic in the beginning, some of them not at all. Um, just, very pragmatically decided to become worker-owned cooperatives. And so I'd like to turn this business that I've created into that kind of thing. I don't want to be a, a capitalist when I get out of this business, <laughs> out of the operation of it. I don't want people to be working for me to um, extract the surplus of their labor. That's sort of a difficult process to go through. I mean, it's complicated, at least, and you've got to have the right people. So we'll see how and when that comes to be. But those would be the two ways that I personally would apply my politics to my own life, turning my business into a worker-owned cooperative and then seeking to find other people to live in a mutually supportive relationship of, a, of agrarian life back on my dad's farmland, where I would like to move and farm with my family. Fantastic. So what would you do if you had control over uh, all branches of government? <laughs> yeah, well, I would... Of course, with the caveat that I don't know what the consequences of anything would be like, what I'd really want to do is abolish most of it. And I really, I still really do like the idea of local, small local communities having their own 
autonomy and ability to organize themselves and enforce their own um, norms and rules and ways of life nonviolently uh, among themselves. And so whatever, as the dictator of America, that I could do to move in that direction, I would want to. I guess some of the first steps that would be to take away a lot of corporate rights because I think that the, just the general structure of the of mm -hmm. stockholder corporation is inherently unjust and leads to a lot of evils. Of course, uh, probably abolish the military, things like that. Um, the prison industrial complex, all of the really obvious injustices of our system. But as far as like systemic change, I think, again, Matt Bruning has been a big influence on me in a lot of these questions. And in the short term, I mean, if I couldn't do anything radical, but just make a realistic change, creating a sovereign wealth fund, the proceeds of which would go towards probably, first of all, a child allowance. So the sovereign wealth fund is the idea that the government becomes sort of like a stockholder of all the corporations in the country and accumulates more and more stock over time through uh, basically through taxation. But because they own the stock, the government owns the stock, it collects the, um, the its share of the income of the businesses, which then, just like the Alaska's um, oil fund, mm -hmm. is directly returned to the people. And I think the first way to do that would be through a child allowance and then universal basic income, I think is a obviously good sort of step towards, incremental step towards what would be a more just national uh, society and political culture. It's a little bit like the ESP platform. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah, so the, the Solidarity Party, I guess I'd like to give them a shout out. I discovered them like a lot of people last year during, the, maybe it was even in 2015 anyway, during the, um, the primary part of the presidential election and the Solidarity Party is a fairly new, fairly small political party explicitly based on the thinking of Catholic social teaching, not the religion of Catholicism, but on the thinking behind the teaching and on the tradition of Christian democratic parties in Europe. And so, yeah, it just almost completely and perfectly embodies a less radical version of my idealism, but the more pragmatic version of what I would want for America, what I would support for America. Fairly left on economic issues, fairly conservative in a sense on most social issues. Cool. Uh, one question I have is, I wonder if you have any insights on where you think there's sort of valuable input you've received from the way in which uh, Anabaptists that you spend a lot of time with organize themselves and where you see tensions or incompatibilities with, you know, the faith of kind of more right, Catholic Orthodox Christians. Well, I, th I have a theory and I don't know, I'd be interested, interested to see what a scholar of the Amish would say about this, but they seem to me to be really highly influenced by monastic tradition. One sort of funny anecdote one of the first times I was driving them to a bunch of meetings with buyers, um, the first year I was working with them, I decided to bring, there was that that album from the 90s, it was just called Chant, and it was Gregorian Chant, 
it was a big hit uh, back in the 90s and I had it. So I decided to use it as kind of a neutral music that wouldn't be offensive to them, but would also not be as boring as just driving in silence for me. So I was playing that. And at one point they asked me what it was or where it came from because they recognized the tunes because they, or I mean their founders or sort of the first Amish people had used the tunes because a lot of them were former monks to write the Amish hymns. So they had kept alive that monastic tradition of, uh, of some of that Gregorian chant. And in a lot of other ways, just the way they organized themselves really feels like uh, what I think a monastery for families, not for celibates, would be. I mean, hmm. they have a, every community has its bishop who has almost complete authority over them, just like an abbot does over the monks. But it's an authority that's not like they don't think that he is divinely inspired or something. It's a, an authority based on the virtue of, of obedience. Like one time, one of the guys was, <laughs> one of the Amish farmers was having kind of a spiritual crisis, and for some reason he confessed it to me because he'd read, and I, don't, I can't think of where exactly this verse comes from, but somewhere it said in the New Testament that men should not wear hats when they pray, and you're supposed to pray always. So that means you should never wear a hat, right? But the Amish men are commanded to wear hats. And in fact, each community, they're commanded to wear a certain hat with a certain width brim, you know, very set specifications. And I asked him, like, why, did, why, do you, why does anybody care? Like, what does it matter what hat you wear if you choose not to wear one? And I, I like most English people, thought that all these rules they have must have some kind of arcane religious theological significance. And they must think, like... You know that there's the electricity. Electricity comes from the devil, or whatever. You know, I assumed it was kind of superstitious and weird. But he said there's not really a reason. I mean, it doesn't really matter if you wear a hat or not. But what matters is obeying the bishop of your community, and just in order that there's less pride of individual self, like self-distinction. The bishop will say everyone is going to do it this way in this community. And so it's obedience for its own sake, but because obedience is good, it teaches us humility and um, and, and self-discipline. And if you, just like in the monastery, if you obey your abbot, you're more able to obey God. Yeah, it's incredibly monastic. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, totally. Um, so I think there's a lot of ways that it really fits in with um, a lot of Catholic tradition and Catholic ideals. Some ways that it definitely is different. I mean, they have absolutely no evangelical drive. In fact, it's, it's pretty hard to become Amish. You can convert to it. And they don't, like, they're not mean or, like, try to keep you from it, but they just don't invite you. You really have to be a pest and kind of, like, push your way in. And then, from what I've heard, it's pretty hard for those people who do come in because they just don't, they don't have the culture. you got to learn the language. And they're not there to, like, make it easier to kind of help you along the way. Um, I mean, they're good, nice people, but that's not, they don't see that as a contemporary command to go out and evangelize. Not at all. In fact, I mean, it's almost like forbidden to them. That was something for the apostles and for Paul, but not for them. And I think in the Catholic Church, people can, and, and Christ, the other Christian churches too, people can take those commands way too universally. I don't think we're all com- commanded to evangelize, but certainly some among us are. And so that's one area where 
they just don't do it at all. And one thing I love about the, the Roman Catholic Church is the many ways that through all the different orders that it has, have, have grown up in it of how to engage in different types of evangelization and social, socially active work. The Amish don't really do that. They're oddly a, a real odd mix of extremely libertarian and extremely communalist. And some of the ways in which they're libertarian I find pretty disheartening. Like, they're almost opposed to most forms of charity because it seems to them they're judging everybody as if everybody was Amish when it comes to things like that. So mm-hmm. if they have excess produce, it's like a little bit difficult for me sometimes to get them to be willing to donate it um, or to take any, at least to spend any time on the donation of it because they feel like if people aren't willing to buy this, then maybe they shouldn't have it. Like if they don't value it enough to pay for it or to work for it, then why should we give it to them? Why, why should they get it? And they don't have that sense of obligation to the outside world really at all. I think like I did when I was that younger um, sort of Christian libertarian anarchist, they thought, they seem to think we'll keep ourselves righteous and leave the world to God. And I definitely don't think in Catholicism or in Christianity really um, that, that that's valid. So that's one area that I pretty strongly disagree with their way of life. Shunning question, shunning is what separates the Amish from the Mennonites. And I don't know what to think about that. I mean, it's probably better than our criminal justice system or it's certainly more nonviolent than any criminal justice system I know of, and that's, I mean, that's what suffices for them as their social consequence of breaking the rules. So it's basically a form of exile, although you can be shunned and still live in, in the house of your family. You just will not be talked to, you won't be able to eat at the table. And eventually, I mean, you can't go on like that forever. You have to leave if you for a very long time, refused to repent and um, come back into communion. So if there were a a world of nonviolent, autonomous Christian communities, like what my ideal is, would shunning be a valid tool for social regulation? I don't know. I'm not sure if I'm willing to condemn that. I know a lot of Christians do condemn that in the Amish. I'm not sure what I make of that. So, Zeb, I know you are a Byzantine Catholic. Yeah. And can you tell us um, and the listeners sort of what what it is to be Byzantine Catholic, what makes it different and sort of how you how you got there? Yeah, sure. Well, when I went to, uh, to Detroit to volunteer with the Franciscans, I was actually living in the rectory of a parish that was run by the Franciscans to the to the Franciscan fathers. And I really loved the Franciscans, and I really loved, loved those fathers, but they just had a style, or the parish anyway, and I think they were fine with it or maybe approving of it, had a style of worship that was extremely hard for me to uh, participate in full-heartedly. And I can't say that I think it was definitely wrong or anything. I'm not very um, opinionated in a like judgmental or condemning way of, I don't know what you might call I don't know if it, probably liberal is not even the right word, but that just kind of, I don't know. <laughs> was there a drum kit? There was not, but like the sign of peace would take a good 15, 20 minutes. 
Ah, Episcopalian. I don't run around and shake everybody's hand. and I don't know. It was just not my style. It just didn't mm-hmm. work for me. It was, so it was very hard for me to get with it. So I decided to explore. I was in Detroit. There's all kinds of churches all around. I decided to explore what was around. And there was a Byzantine church fairly close to us. And I had never, I think once in college, I went to an attempted Byzantine liturgy done for the Byzantine Catholic students. But um, it wasn't a very well done one because there was like three Byzantine students there. So I didn't really get to see what a real Byzantine liturgy was like. So I went to this one in Detroit. And it was a really small community, but they were super welcoming and friendly and just made me feel very welcome. And the liturgy, I just instantly fell in love with it. It was a Ruthenian parish, which is, um, so that's the Byzantine tradition that comes from like the Carpathian Mountains uh, around Slovakia and uh, part of Austria and part of Ukraine, that that region. Um, but it was all in English and... It was just it's just so different from anything I'd seen before. Everything was sung like beginning to end other than basically the sermon and maybe one prayer in there. So the whole thing held together in a way that I'd never experienced in a Roman Catholic liturgy. And because it's all sung mostly by the congregation, um, there's a lot less time to zone out <laughs> when the <laughs> priest is up there saying his prayers and you're trying to pay attention but uh, mm-hmm. not doing well because you, you're being uh, sort of expected to sing along and they sing the theology like in really explicit detail through the whole thing um, in a way that I hadn't, that the Roman Catholic Church, at least in the uh, post-Vatican II liturgy doesn't generally do. So I just decided to to stay with it while I was there in Detroit because I liked the liturgy and the people so much and by the end of that year there it really had a hold on my heart. And uh, when I moved to Philadelphia, I didn't have a chance to go to a Byzantine church. But when I moved finally back home to my dad's farm, um, we're right in the heart of Byzantine Catholic America. And so, or at least what was Byzantine Catholic America when that was basically a European immigrant thing. And so there were Byzantine churches close by, and that's where I just started going. It just felt like home to me. And... Um, after a few years of going to that liturgy, I transferred over officially so that I could um, receive the bigger sacraments like marriage um, within that church and be under its jurisdiction. it'd be interesting to talk about the seventh seal in relation to my background interview here because this movie is what's my favorite movie and it has been since i first saw it around the age somewhere between 19 and 21 Uh, a friend of mine from high school showed it to me when i was visiting him during my freshman or sophomore year of college and i'd never been interested in or seen really any european movies or art house movies that just wasn't my thing but he happened to have this thing laying around. It was like in the early days of Netflix when everybody had like one difficult movie sitting on their TV stand that they never sent back because they were going to watch it while they also were like renting all the more fun stuff. 
So this was his difficult art house movie that he fell asleep within five minutes. And I just watched mm -hmm. beginning to end um, totally wrapped and fascinated by it. Um, it really struck me deeply at the time because of the issues that it brought up. And it stayed with me because it can be reinterpreted and reunderstood in so many different ways. So a brief um, sort of synopsis. This the plot is that there is a Swedish knight who is returning from the Crusades back to Sweden. It, it becomes apparent that he left for the Crusades sort of under the spell of religious zeal, but was coming back completely deflated and cynical. The Sweden, the homeland he comes back to, is being ravaged by the plague. So he and his squire, who is um, sort of like his assistant knight who travels with him, but he's, he's a grown man, um, his age or even older maybe, are trying to get back to his to the knight's castle where his wife, who he had just married before leaving for the crusade, hopefully is still there. And they encounter people along the way. But right in the beginning, they're waking up on the beach and the figure of death, the sort of classic black robe, white face, appears and tells the knight, whose name is Antonius Block, he tells Antonius he's come to take him. And Block challenges him to a game of chess because he's seen in poetry and in paintings that Death is an avid chess player. And Death can't resist the challenge, so they start playing a game of chess. The agreement is that while they're playing the game, the knight will be left alive, and if the knight wins, then he wins his life. And so the movie happens during interludes in the chess game. They'll make a move and then continue their journey for a while, and then Death will reappear and make another move. The whole thing kind of comes across in the form kind of, of a uh, morality play, which I think, at least maybe that's suggested to me by the fact that in the movie they encounter morality plays and there's a troop of actors who figure into the movie who are traveling around from town to town performing morality plays um, at this time to make a living. But all the characters in here are really more like archetypes than fleshed out real people. And that's why I find, so, find it so easy to reinterpret and to apply to a lot of different kinds of situations or a lot of questions. And when I first saw this, like I said, I was in my early 20s or so at a time where, and we, had, we didn't even actually bring this up during my interview, but um, when I tried to enter the seminary and uh, didn't get in, I still went to the college associated with the seminary, the Catholic College Gannon University up in Erie. But while there, my first semester had a crisis of faith where I quit believing in Christianity or any sort of revealed truth. And in fact, where I lost my belief in that, I quit believing in any kind of um, truth and became like a really radical skeptic, which is why I dropped out of college and just was in a real spiritual, intellectual, emotional, personal turmoil. And a total identity crisis as well, because I thought for sure I was going to become, become a priest and that Christianity was the most important thing about me. And now I didn't have Christianity or that life path of the priesthood ahead of me. So um, that's kind of where the knight is in this movie, too. He went on this crusade thinking he was going to serve out his vocation and do something for the glory of God and capture the Holy Land for, for Christendom. And he's come back completely de defeated, having seen all kinds of terrible things there and failure and um, the absurdity of life, the futility of 
of war and of um, even maybe any kind of grand, uh, well, crusade in the more metaphorical sense of trying to achieve anything big for an ideal. Um, and now he's come back home to this place that's completely in chaos and uh, death is everywhere. So when I saw the movie, it was after that spiritual crisis. And um, in response to that crisis, what I did at the time was, uh, after spending a few months at home working, trying to decide what to do, I just gave up on life altogether. I gave away everything I owned to the local Salvation Army, threw away all the things that wouldn't have any value to the Salvation Army, and started walking. Um, I thought, because I'd read The Seven Story Mountain, uh, Thomas Burton's autobiography, I thought I'll go down to the monastery that Thomas Merton had lived at, Gethsemane, in uh, Kentucky, and see if they had any wisdom, even though I didn't believe in Christianity anymore. I thought they might still have either be able to convince me to come back to it or have some wisdom about how to find God or what to do with life. And I thought, it's up to, up to God whether I make it there or something um, derails that, that path, and I don't really care what what happens anyway, so whatever happens, happens, but I'll just throw myself out there into the world and let fate or God's will carry me as it will. Um, but on that path, walking down to the, to the monastery, um, before I even made it there, I, there was this one day where I was trying to kind of keep myself going by repeating some sort of made up mantras that I had in my head from having read some like American introductions to Taoism and Buddhism, which was kind of a fad in the uh, late 90s then. And uh, so I was saying like stuff about, I don't know, like the Tao and, and things in my mind just to keep me on the, like literally walking when I was exhausted in the hot sun on the roadside. And it just felt, as it was, it felt kind of phony and contrived to me. And it was really frustrating that I really didn't have anything to lean on other than I still believed in some kind of benevolent God, but I knew nothing about him or how to live in accord with him or, or any rule or how to be good. It seemed like any possible course I would take would be doomed to, um, to being mistaken um, and to doing harm in some way or yeah, being on the wrong path somehow. So I was just so frustrated. And uh, in that frustration, I stopped all my thought and said, in a way or in a manner, I said to God, I, just tell me, what is it? Like, what's the truth? What's real? And tried to just purely, blankly listen. And um, it really was like maybe one of two semi-mystical experiences, as best I can tell. I mean, I just to be as humbly honest as I can about it, that's how it seemed to me. I felt like I got an answer that Jesus Christ is real or is, or is true, like is the truth. And not any doctrine or dogma behind that, but um, and, and not in words, certainly. Like I didn't hear a voice or something, but it was just this sense like that's what it is. That's the truth. Jesus is the truth. And it remained to be seen if that meant any form of Christianity, like an actually existing Christian faith, or, I mean, I didn't know if that meant Jesus is, like, Trinitarian theology is true, if Jesus is God, or is the Son of God, or what, in that moment. But as I went on, um, like, that was sort of like the starting seed of the return of my faith. And by just trying to continue to hear and follow God's will for me as best I could do, um, I felt eventually, so I made it to the monastery in about seven days, 
got several rides. I wasn't hitchhiking or asking for rides, but people would stop. And if they did, I was just willing to let whatever, like I said, whatever happens, happens. So if people stopped to, to offer a ride, I would let them drive me to as far or to wherever they were willing to drive me. And so I made it to the monastery in seven days. And um, while there felt in sort of a similar way, like God's will for me was to be Catholic and oddly, and, and sort of specifically, not that Catholicism is true, or is the truth, or is the true religion or church, but that it was God's will for me to be Catholic, which, of course, means assenting to the claims that it makes, the truth claims that it makes, but more than that, to joining into the life of it. And, you know, since then, in, well, 17 years now of... Uh, reading and learning and stuff, I certainly would defend the truth of a lot of Catholic doctrine pretty confidently, but um, that's, it didn't come from an, a sense of the truth of it so much as a sense of obedience to God's will for me. So um, I saw this movie you know, like just about a year after that experience. So I still really felt a deep affinity for the struggle that Antonius Block is going through where He's completely deflated by his sense of what his mission was or his calling, having been a total failure. And in fact, he is much more in the place of not knowing if God exists or what God is like or what is true regarding God, but also feeling haunted by the sense that it's not a closed question. He can't just let it go. Like, um, that, there, that God is there, but he won't show himself. And so he's obsessed with finding some way to know who and what God is. Um, the squire who's following him is a much more content cynic who thinks that everything is meaningless, um, doesn't believe in any religion, doesn't believe there's any meaning to life other than just experiences of pain and pleasure. And that's kind of a funny, uh, sarcastic attitude about everything. Um, so he, the knight and the squire are making their way back towards the castle, and they come upon this troop of, of actors who are, like I said, going around doing morality plays. And in this troop, there's a young couple. Their names are Yoff and Maria, which interestingly are um, cognates of Joseph and Mary. And they've got a baby son named Michael, not a cognate of Jesus, but anyway. So it's this kind of like a image of the Holy Family, at least, in a sense. And Yoff... So Joff, the actor, is like the opposite of Antonius Block. He's not at all intellectual or plagued by all this, his intellectual concerns. And at the same time, though, he's blessed with mystic visions all the time. And it's kind of unclear, and I choose to take the interpretation that he really is seeing these things, but he's accused by even his wife of making up these visions, or some people clearly think he's just kind of goofy or maybe a little bit. Well, um, he, he does admit to having made up at least one of them. Yeah. Praise. Yeah, yeah. He he's has uh, used <laughs> the excuse of, of his visions um, to uh, get out of trouble in the past. But he but he says that he really does see these things. And uh, so he sees a, ver a vision of Mary early on. And later in the movie, he's the only person other than the knight who sees the figure of death every time he appears. So the knight encounters these guys and decides to accompany them and try to help them get through this dark forest that they're trying to go through to get to their next, I guess, to their next performance thing. 
and they meet a bunch of other people on the way. Um, so there's the seminarian or doctor of theology who is, apparently had had some role in convincing the knight to go on the crusade, but who is clearly totally corrupt and um, was using his position for personal benefit and wealth and has devolved or degraded himself to becoming a thief and a rapist. There's the blacksmith, Plogue, who's kind of like the emotional oaf who's always worried about his wife cheating on him. And he has a cock. does cheat on him all the time. He what? He has a cock. <laughs> yeah. yeah, he's a cock. <laughs> they come across a, a procession of penitents who are traveling around, whipping themselves and castigating all the people in the land for being sinners and that being the reason that that the plague is cursing the land. So they travel through, they, they meet a, a witch, a young girl who's being uh, burned as a witch who claims to actually, I mean, who believes that she is a witch and has had Congress with the devil. And uh, the knight's first reaction to that is that he wants her to tell him <laughs> what he's seen. Like, that's his immediate reaction is, oh, yeah, you've seen the devil, please. <laughs> How? How do you do it? What's he say? What can you tell me about it? Because he's so obsessed with finding answers. And finally, they they make it to the castle. Death takes everybody except Yof and Mia and their little son into the afterlife. And in the end, Yof and Mia and the son, they, they escape. And so there's a lot of ways that this can be interpreted. And I wonder, what, I wonder just off the bat, what your guys' thoughts were on the movie, your initial impressions, and kind of what it meant to you. I mean, obviously, you know, it's a beautifully shot, really interesting film. Um, the amount that I necessarily identify with some of the characters is you know, certainly very different, I think, from sort of you. You, know, you said that you know, really Antonius and Yoff were the two. I kind of exemplified your your life in your twenties, um, mm-hmm. and Jones is the easiest one for me to identify with. Uh-huh. Yes, there's the squire Jones. He sneers at death, laughs at God, mocks himself, and winks at the pretty girls. His world is his own world, implausible to all except himself. A joke to everyone, including himself. Worthless to heaven and absolutely irrelevant to hell. Because, you know, most of the time, usually, I more or less accept, you know, I, I, it's very easy for me to be cynical and frustrated about the idea of grand answers and all that. I find things like theology very interesting. And, you know, I, I guess, you know, I've accepted the teachings of the Catholic Church and all that, but the idea that I'm going to hit on any of them in my life, I don't have a lot of expectations for. So I'm okay with pretty much being the sort of disinterested cynic of, you know, that, that traveling group. But at the same time, I mean, he's the one, I think, more than any of them that's moved to anger. Um, when he comes on uh, Reval, the corrupt seminarian or theologian or whatever, attempting to, I don't know if it was rob, kill, rape, or all of the, um, the mute girl. Mm-hmm. in the the village i mean he has you know that flash of anger and you know he can he condemns him and he, he uses you know extremely explicitly religious language you're know, talking about you know these sins against god this sort of thing with a sort of passion for them that outside of the the monk that's part of the penitent procession you don't really see that kind of righteous fury and conviction expressed by any of the other characters so even even though he is very much the the cynic and the the skeptic, you know the the twist there, 
where he's also the one who's kind of pushed to really some sort of strong passion and rage at the injustice of the situation. Whereas Antonius in so many ways, you know, his struggles are internal and to the world itself, it seems in many ways he's more or less given up. Yeah. Yeah. Watching it last night and trying to look at it more in terms of contemporary American culture, I really thought uh, Jan's, he was reminding me a lot of the dirtbag left in mm-hmm. a lot of different ways. For sure. You know, he's, he's always trying to uh, <laughs> tell a dirty joke. He has that really wry, sarcastic, cynical view. But then, yeah, like you said, he does be. have the righteous anger. Like when uh, when the soldiers were going to burn the witch, he says to the knight that he considered killing them all to save mm-hmm. her, but that it wouldn't have mattered anyway because she was so close to death. But, you know, the knight was obsessed with just getting answers from her before, before she was burned alive. Right. But Jans is the one who had the righteous anger and the sense of injustice that needed to be righted. And even in the uh, in the tavern, when all the guys are harassing Yoff and making him dance and all that, it's Jans who saves him there as well, isn't it? Yeah. So, yeah I mean, for, for all of his sort of expressed cynicism and, you know, immorality, he seems to be most frequently, at least <laughs> out of the pair of them, the one that kind of steps in, that actually steps up. You know, you know what that moment is in, in the Twitter world? That's when Virgil Texas told Richard Dawkins that God is real. <laughs> <laughs> he, and, he steps I up mean, to the corrupt academic <laughs> to defend and, the mystic visionary. <laughs> there, there's also, back to continue the dirtbag left comparison, that um, Jones, just when you start to really like him, says something incredibly gross, <laughs> creepy to him. He's like, I saved you. I could have raped you, but I'm bored of doing that. Oh, I did that for the past 10 years. And you're like, and now, Jesus, now I, just, I just started to like you. <laughs> and that's when you take left out of your Twitter profile. Side to side of the night. You know, so certainly he was the, out of all the characters, the most that I can kind of get out of. I like Yelf as the, the holy fool who being that kind of joyful idiot is kind of, he is rewarded for that in many ways, or as much as anyone can be in this kind of hellish world that they're living in. The other thing that I was, I kept noticing was with the um, the chess match. There were a couple things that I noticed about the way that with them playing chess. So there's the confession scene where Antonius thinks he's confessing to a priest, and it's really death. Mm-hmm. And you know he's bragging about how he's pretty sure he's got death beat in his next few moves in this chess game, and he talks about with a combination of his bishop and his knight. So obviously there's like the mm. parallels of, you know, like the crusade thing and all this working out, you know, this combination of the of chivalric valor and religious orders and how well that has worked out for him for the past 10 years of his life. But there's also the fact that in chess that that's not a great pair of pieces to have. <laughs> yeah. And actually, I mean, at the end, you know, one of the weakest combinations. So I thought it was interesting that out of all the possible pieces, that's actually not a great it was like yeah, just not just the symbolism of of it in his life with religion and mm. military force, but that's he he thinks this is great, and that's that's really not a good setup that he's got. Uh, but it also really annoyed me at the end, and I I got really mad at death every time I watched it because he cheats at the death cheats at the end. Oh yeah. Um. Well, I guess they're both you know kind of cheating. So you know, death <laughs> says it's your move, and then you know Antonius goes and he accidentally knocks the pieces mm-hmm. over. He's like, oh, I forgot where they were. And Death's like, no, don't worry. I remember where everything is. And Death puts them back. But then Death moves again. Oh, I never so noticed that. He moves that. twice in a row. 
Uh, and it really annoys me because that's how that's when he mates. That's when he mates. It's only some wins. It's uh, just he's is that he death moves twice in a row. Um, so in this interpretation, death is capitalism. <laughs> <laughs> but no, I mean that's the. I assume that that you know someone like Bergman is not going to accidentally just forget right. about that. I assume it has to be intentional. Um, so the questions of free will, not just the inevitability of death winning, but that death can just make the move. Like it's it's not death's, right. turn, but just, death just does it anyway and mates him and kills and essentially you know kills him, mm-hmm. um, regardless of the rules of the game. I thought it was it was a cute little very subtle. Yeah, death death definitely makes a an illegal move right at the very end to get that to get that. That's interesting. Yeah, no kidding. So what about you, Kent? Uh, I should say first uh, an anecdote about this film. Um, this was one of the many movies that age 15, um, I talked a lot about really liking and never actually uh, made it all the way through <laughs> because I thought it made me really interesting. And I actually had a solo black metal project that I had a quote from the Seven Seal on the MySpace page of, uh, despite never having made it through the movie until this year. <laughs> um, <laughs> it's a little confession for you guys. Yeah, it's a, it's a strikingly beautiful movie to kind of absorb, even though it doesn't kind of it, there's things about it that feel kind of shabby it, just in terms of production. Um, it's interesting that, that you call it a morality play because it does sort of have that kind of that feeling of like uh, dramatic tableaus to it. And my wife actually had asked if it was uh, originally a stage play. It's not, but it was an interesting observation. I, I see where the observation is coming from that the characters are archetypes, um, but it isn't exactly like a, a pilgrim's progress or anything like that. Like Antonius doesn't get, <laughs> he doesn't f- figure anything out, right? Like he doesn't in the way that you might expect from a, um, yeah, it's not a morality um, play, a Christian morality play. I think it's an existentialist morality play. Right. Exactly. Yeah. So I have a question for you, Zevin, maybe in Kent, maybe as well. So that, you know, there's the final shot, when Yoff sees them in the, the dance of death, right? And he says, you know, he can see death leading them. And Scott, the leader of the troop, is at the back of the line. And so there's seven figures. And I keep counting this in my head. Because I, I keep feeling that there, there's more characters that death claims at the in the castle at the very end than you actually see figures. And, you know, it's so far away and blurry that... yeah. Well, Yoff does not mention the mute girl or the knight's wife. The, the mute girl and the knight's wife mm-hmm. are not there. Hmm. Yeah. So, and again, um, I don't know enough about Bergman to know what he might be trying to get, but I assume that has to be intentional. Yeah, I wonder. So, what? How? What do you see the mute girl representing in in the morality play? Well, of course, yeah, she's a lot harder to say much about because she doesn't talk. And right until, although right until the very end, and she welcomes death in a way that the rest do not. In a kind of pious, her eyes fill with tears. It seems to me maybe tears of joy, and it's unclear if it's just escaping this horrible world where she'd been left alone mm-hmm. on this farm and then attacked by Rival and then sort of escaped into service of this of the squire, but still had tr- clearly been traumatized. Because she wasn't mute, like medically or psychologically, it was—it must have been from trauma. Because she does speak right at the end, and seems to be pious. So um, 
Yeah, I don't know what to make of her. That I think she may represent innocence lost or attacked by the world that she's in. Okay, so the innocence lost archetype, why is she not with death? It's unclear the way Yoff describes that vision, where they're being led to. I've always taken it as a hopeful as a hopeful thing. Yoff is saying death. Death, the taskmaster, leads them in their dance. Their hands are joined, and they all dance in a long line. Death comes first with his scythe and his hourglass. And poor old cat, he straggles behind them at the end of the line. They go further away, away from the sunrise, in their stately dance, to the dark country beyond the horizon, while the rain gently washes their faces and cleanses the tears from their cheeks. So they're going to the dark lands, but their faces are being washed clean and the salt of their tears is being washed from their face. And yeah. one of the really interesting things about death is that he always tells the knight that he doesn't know anything. And I don't think he's just being a jerk about that or uh, or lying. I think he really doesn't. And so this ambiguity here, um, well, I mean, Bergman is not a Christian, so for one thing, maybe he doesn't want to say everyone goes to heaven in the end or something. And the ambiguity is, is intentional, for sure. He doesn't want to answer the knight's question positively one way or the other, but Depending on where this group is going, that might not be the same place that the wife and the mute girl are going. Mm-hmm. Well, I'm thinking, yeah, so, you know, taking the, the mute girl as the, you know, the seventh seal, you know, breaks her silence finally at the very end when it is finished. Hmm. Yeah, the, the rain washing, the rain clearing, cleaning the tears from their cheeks makes it kind of a a tough sell for it to be death bringing the impious. Cause the, re- the rest of the people that are with death have all sinned during the film pretty clearly in one way or another. I suppose plug isn't exactly sin. Well, he's, he's not what I was saying. I, I, I'm trying to think if, if plug actually has any real clear sins in the film. Cause the rest of them that are with death, I'll do. Yeah. I think plug does. He threatens violence all the time. He's Fair. super emotional and yeah, he's just like almost, he sort of represents the person who's living like a beast in some ways. Like, not, I don't mean that in an exactly negative way, but just, well, he's kind of dumb, <laughs> full of passions and lust for his wife. Um, certainly not the worst person in the group or the worst kind of person in the world, but not living an elevated life in any sense or a particularly virtuous one, just like a very natural, mm-hmm. um, natural passions sort of life. And, you know, we, yeah, we don't know anything about uh, Antonius's wife other than that she seems to have waited for him mm-hmm. and she's reading the Bible during dinner. That's about all we, all we know about her. So I'm wondering if their exclusion from this group, some difference between, or you know, at least some condemnation of the other characters. And I also do actually want to disagree with you on about death, whether or not death is being a jerk about claiming not to know. You're checkmated in the next, You're right. What did you gain by this reprieve? A great deal. Glad to hear it. I leave you now. We will meet again, and when we do, your life and the lives of those with you will end. And you'll reveal your secrets to me? 
I have no secrets to reveal. You mean you know nothing? I am unknowing. You might you might well be right, but elsewhere in the film, he's pretty consistently a jerk. <laughs> yeah. Um, you know, he he tricks Antonius constantly. Not not just you yeah. know cheating at death, but like when Antonius is at his most vulnerable in the confessional, death is just messing with him right. and rallying him up and like. Yeah, death as trickster deity is an interesting uh is an interesting portrayal. Mm. So yeah, I'm not sure I would necessarily be comfortable taking Death's word at face value given his actions during the rest of the the film. Right. Yeah, I think that's a fair point. Um I guess thematically character wise, yeah, that makes sense. Thematically it makes more sense to me if Death is is only knows what he does. He Mm-hmm. Takes people's lives away, and can't answer for what happens or why, and and doesn't know. Although, yeah, I wonder. It, I watched the the Passion of the Christ on uh, Good Friday last week, and then just watching this, it made me wonder really if uh, the way <laughs> um, Satan is depict, depicted in that movie there's more than one resemblance to death in this movie. Movie, for one thing, it's a bald, very pallid person in a black hooded robe. But also, it really seems like Satan, and it's also an androgynous character, but as Satan is tempting Christ at different points, seems like Satan doesn't know who or what Jesus is, um, and is challenging Jesus as if this isn't the Son of God, but it's just like some somebody who thinks he's very holy, or it's like a mm. prophet or something. And I just I wondered if Mel Gibson might have been uh, influenced in his, the way he depicted Satan by this movie because it seemed like there was that same like very limited scope of vision that's what to me that's how I'm taking what death's refusal to answer questions or saying that there's nothing to know or like nothing is known Mm -hmm. is just that he has such a limited scope of what he sees and knows it's hard to imagine that any depiction of death or of Satan in the last 50 years or so has been unimpacted by this particular one Mm mm-hmm so I have another question that I could ask about the end of the film that I, I don't know if I have an answer to, so I would be interested to hear from you guys, especially Zeb, this being, I know, a film that you've thought about a lot. When Death comes into the house and they all realize, and they all can finally see him, because, you know, they all address they all address Death. Antonius is in the back praying to God for, you know, mercy and forgiveness and all of that. Would you consider it to be a sincere prayer of faith for him, or... Is it his terror in the face of his his death, not just death itself, but his actual death? Because Jones very clearly thinks that it's just the night being the night scared. Yeah. In keeping with what Antonius how he acts and what he represents in my mind throughout this movie, I, I take it to be like a one one last ditch effort to just get an answer, to mm-hmm. know before he dies what's coming or what's there. So not exactly a fear of dying or what his fate will be, but a fear of going into the unknown and of never having satisfied his, his question about is there a God there and what is it? What is God or what is death? What, what is behind everyday reality? So that's how I take it. Okay. I wish I were better versed in Kierkegaard. (laughs) Mm -hmm. Yeah. We should do a Kierkegaard. I really would. I would love yeah. to do a you know, where we do a bit of planning and a bit of reading. Yeah, I feel like that would have been very helpful for me to provide uh, insights here. Is some um, 
being conversant in, in Kierkegaard. Yeah. So I was, I had not, have never read any Kierkegaard, Kierkegaard but was really interested in, um, and, and tried to learn a bit about existentialist philosophy in my 20s when this movie was first really of interest to me. And so that's why I interpreted it in that way. And uh, when the knight is talking to Death, he's explain Death asks him why he's playing chess with Death, because Antonius thinks he's just talking to a monk. So who he thinks is a monk says, why are you playing chess with Death? Antonius says, to get a reprieve to arrange an urgent matter. Death says, what matter is that? And Antonius says, my life has been a futile pursuit, a wandering, a great deal of talk without meaning. I feel no bitterness or self-reproach because the lives of most people are very much like this. But I will use my reprieve for one meaningful deed. And at that point, he doesn't know what that deed is. It doesn't seem like, I mean, it's never declared or shown what that is. But then just a little while after that scene is when he first meets Yofamiya and their son and has a really beautiful moment sharing a bowl of wild strawberries and milk with them in the sunset. And then he meets Death again, and Death reveals that he's going to kill the family as well as the knight. And that's when the knight starts to think about what he can do to try to help or save them. And that's why in that the last scene where you mentioned, Mark, that Death cheated in chess, the knight sees that Yof sees the chess game happening. Uh, Yof and me are sort of overlooking this, and Yof can see Death and the, and the chess game. And the knight sees this, and that's when he knocks the pieces over to distract mm. death so that Jons can get away. And so this is his last meaningful act, or his one meaningful act, I, guess, I mean. That, for me, that always really was a really poignant moment and mm -hmm. meant a lot to me, because even though in my early 20s I had overcome that crisis of faith and had come back to the church, I was still a lot like the knight in being very uh, paralyzed by uncertainty about all right. kinds of questions of life, what to do, how to be good, what particular path I should pursue, or what my vocation is, how to relate to people. So, and, and taking it all very intellectually, I just couldn't help but be very intellectual about it. And I viewed Yof as the ideal of what, what I would want to be, somebody whose life is very creative, he's an artist, who has a loving family and uh, is fruitful, he's got a young son, and who has this direct visionary relationship with the divine, with God and, and the saints, with Mary. So that was the ideal, but I didn't know, I mean, I still don't know, but I thought that might not be attainable, but if nothing else, I could do something like Antonius, which is give myself up in some way or mm -hmm. make sacrifices, do things to enable other people to live the life that, that I idealize, that I would wish to have, even if I can't figure out how to have it, just like Antonius Block can't figure out how to get to to be that person, he can at least enable that person to be. And so he's done his one meaningful act. And um, even if he doesn't find the certainty about God and answer his questions, by joining his life to Yofamiya's in that way, by sacrificing it for them, I feel like he's in act, if not in, in thought, has found that answer, has, has united himself to what they themselves have realized. You using the you know mentioning sacrificing himself to them because I had made a note while watching that scene where they're eating the strawberries and drinking the milk. I shan't forget this moment, the stillness, the twilight, the strawberries, and the bowl of milk. Your faces lit up by the sun. Michael sleeping in the wagon, Joss 
sitting there strumming. And I won't forget what we've been talking about. I'll bear the image between my hands, as carefully as if it were a shallow bowl filled to the brim with fresh milk. And this shall be to me a sign and a great sufficiency. I don't know if it's word for word, because I don't know how the translation worked it, but it's certainly extremely reminiscent of uh, the Last Supper scene. It had to have been intentional. Like, it was, he takes the, the bowl of strawberries, granted, and then he takes the drink, and he talks about all this doing in remembrance, and this, you know, sharing of a, of a meal with them, and that, that he then, yes, goes and sacrifices himself for them. Yeah. Is uh, maybe more of the Scorsese version of that uh, that interpretation of the Gospels. But certainly there there are... It would be extremely problematic to try and read the entirety of, of Antonius's character onto sort of a Jesus-like figure. But where at least he seems to find his meaning is, you know, as you say, you're sort of transformed in that meal that he shares with them. Those last stages of, yes, sacrificing himself for this unknown family... There seems to be something. There's something that Bergman is trying to do. I feel like. Ah, here we go. This was this was the line. He turns away. He turns his face away and looks out towards the sea and the colorless gray sky, and it will be an adequate sign. It will be enough for me. Mm-hmm. It's sort of how he concludes his, his last supper monologue with them. And yeah, it, it struck me as extremely reminiscent of the Last Supper setting. Yeah, that's really cool. Uh, I've never. Noticed that parallel before, but yeah, very much so. Did you guys see any ways that you thought things in here could be applied to a, a bigger, a larger context? I mean, as, as always, there's the question of the plague that's killing all of these communities, and you know whether you want to have that great sickness be a, a literal plague or have it be capitalism or liberalism or whatever else it is, and the way that the characters try and deal with that because historically, you know, responses in Europe to the plague are very fascinating and complicated. And, you know, Zeb, certainly, you know, this is an intellectually and emotionally satisfying film for you. And the answer is, you know, the the family that creates kind of their own internal community and they have other members as a part of it, but they they survive that sickness by creating, you know, keeping their little community, community separate. And when the night warns them that the South Coast is being ravaged by plague, they decide not to go go near those mm. those areas that's a little arc yeah yeah you see um you know for the most part people in the villages when the penitent procession which is so interesting to me when that shows up everyone gets very serious and holy and pious and all that but the rest of the time they're just kind of drinking and having fun and doing their thing and until they die they're aware of this plague but like they basically just seem to let it go on go on around them in the villages so today um, I was in an elevator and there was a woman who had mentioned that uh, she heard news that the the Facebook killer uh, was spotted in both Baltimore and D.C. Uh, and everyone got in kind of a um, – and of course I looked this up later and it was totally untrue. <laughs> but I had also seen that like you know, I, virtually everyone in every city on the, on the East Coast uh, had heard some rumor that he was um, – I don't know. It is interesting to see the the kind of the the disturbed panic that 
Mm. There was a tenor um, that was resonant with me. Well, like the, the first part of the scene in the inn where there's just some of the local townsfolk discussing the weird signs and stuff. Yes, it's horrifying. The plague has begun to spread all along the coast. Every town has hundreds of dead. In normal times, I'd have had my entire stock sold out by now. But this year, people are much too frightened to go to market. They talk of the day of reckoning. And there are all these omens. They must mean something. Yesterday, a woman gave birth to the head of a calf. The people are fleeing from the towns. They wander around the country, bringing the plague wherever they go. There's no way to escape it. So we might as well all stay home and have ourselves a good time while we're healthy enough to enjoy it. Some purify their souls with fire and die of it. But the priests say that it's better to die pure than live with the threat of hell. This is the end. That's what it is. Everyone knows it, but nobody dares to say it out loud. We are going to see the end of the world. No wonder people are crazed with fear. Hmm. And you, aren't you afraid? Of course I am. What do you think? The last day is upon us. The angels will ascend and the graves will open. It will be a dreadful sight to see. Yeah, it does have that a better resemblance to the kind of thing that spreads like wildfire on social media now. It's fake news. <laughs> yeah yeah fake news uh all these crazy stories yeah the whole thing for me uh seemed like it could be mapped on to this recent kind of shift in our in what's been going on at least in a superficial way or a very general way because i think this movie is like really representative of, of modernist sensibility in a lot of ways you know this is came out in like, whatever 56 or 57 right at the the peak of that phase of culture and intellectual intellectual period. Antonius Block, in a lot of ways, I think, represents the modernist mindset of taking everything completely intellectually, wanting to solve the puzzles and the problems, get it all laid out in black and white, and also going adventuring around the world based on this black and white ideology. But uh, it's prophetic, and I mean, it's clearly meant to be sort of apocalyptic, so he goes out on this adventure, it all, everything turns to hell out there. Uh, this whole thing is a disaster. And he comes home, and his homeland is also turned into a cesspit of, of chaos and death and disorder. And uh, early on, uh, right towards the beginning, the squire is talking about some monstrous things that people have seen, like the two horses eating each other, mm-hmm. <laughs> all, those, all those weird signs and symbols. And then in the in the inn, the the people are recounting those same things. And you know, uh, Jonathan Pajot was talking about what what monsters mean. They're uh, and these aren't monsters in the sense of like beasts, but they're monstrous observations or events. They're portents of chaos or of or the chaos that comes in a really rapid shift. And clearly, this the Knights Hallman is going through that. And it really feels like we're going through through that right now too, with the rise of this weird, super strange administration, the Trump administration, and the oddball politics that brought them into place, uh, and the, the hysteria that's breaking out on all sides, people thinking that the Russians are controlling every aspect <laughs> of American life, or people thinking that Black Lives Matter is a terrorist organization that is trying to kill white people. People are really going crazy and seeing monstrous signs all around them, and it's like a I think you can. I can. I look at this and I see the night. If he represents the modernist project of 
uh, rational, intellectual ordering and then command and conquer kind of the world, all that coming up empty because it can't grapple with the real weirdness and chaos of, of the world as it is. And because it's completely out of touch with the deeper ordered like can't find God and our modernist neoliberal regime or sort of ruling ideology can't find a basis. You know, it doesn't have roots in anything other than the idea of, of progress and its own sort of rational tenets. And so the interesting thing is, um, is there a possibility for that force in our culture to do the one meaningful act that Antonius Block did and knock over the game to give whatever you often me represent? Um, mm -hmm. it's, it's really interesting that they're not dogmatic or ideological as characters. You know, the only person who is religiously is, well, there's a few, I guess, the, um, the flagellants who are traveling around the country. Maybe Raval, the, the doctor of theology from the seminary, but probably completely falsely in his case. And there's the implication that the priests who are like condemning the witch are also dogmatic. But none of them are sympathetic characters or mm -hmm. seem to have any answers or any any good ideas or goodness to them. It's only Yafamiya who simply find God in the world while they're also finding all the other the goods that God provides. Their own creativity, nature, their child, each other. And so can my, my, my question watching it's like the challenge to me when I watch this movie is can that impulse in me, that intellectual need for everything to be rational and answered, can that part of me turn out like knock over the game to give the more naive or mm -hmm. natural, innocent and in touch with the good things of the world, including God, a chance to live? And can our culture do that? Can those elements of our culture do the same? That's a, to me, that's the hope anyway. Hmm. It's, Interesting, you know, because yeah, you mentioned the the penitent procession. It's they're not just different to Yoff and Mia. They're pretty much set up in direct contrast to them, right. because Yoff and Mia are up there doing their play where they're making like animal noises and singing and dancing, and it's I mean completely meaningless but kind of fun and happy. And then the the penitent procession shows up, and when I was watching the note that I made was it was an anti orgy. Because <laughs> well, because it was all the ecstatic fervor and energy of like a bacchanalian orgy, but it was all sort of directed towards death. So you know, all all the people in that procession are driven. I've driven themselves mad. They're like foaming at the mouth and screaming and beating themselves. And you know, after the sort of life affirming silliness of the animal noise play, it's a very sharp contrast. And certainly for a existential film of the modern era, yeah, the Bergman's opinions on dogmatic religion there, I think, are pretty clear. Yeah, and that the play that Yoff and me are doing actually is, it's a song making fun of Satan. I don't know if you noticed the, the oh, lyrics in it. Is it? I yeah, so which is sense. just a perfect contrast. They're up there hmm. <laughs> singing this song mocking Satan, written pretty weirdly, like almost like abstract imagery. But the things that are intelligible are like the black one standing on the seashore, and then the black one, I think, shits on the seashore. And but the black one is Satan. So yeah, they're uh, uh, very much um, like the opposite thing of of the penitents who are also there to talk about Satan, but right. use Satan as a very real and dangerous thing who is used as a like as a cudgel against the people to humiliate them and put them down. 
I, I do have one, um, basically my, my closing thoughts about the, the movie itself. If we're kind of wrapping up with closing thoughts, as you know, I mean, I, I did really enjoy it. I thought it was interesting. And like I said, Zeb, it definitely, some of the other things you said, it kind of start to make more sense to me now knowing like why this is an important movie to you and your perception of kind of weirdness in our society and all that. But I do feel compelled to point out that this movie is supposed to take place in 14th century Scandinavia <laughs> and they're burning a witch. And this did not happen during the middle ages. The medievalists <laughs> did nothing wrong. <laughs> it was a mo- early modern invention that they tried to blame on the good and noble medieval peasant. And it did hurt a little to see my pure faultless medieval society be <laughs> so slandered in this film. Dang it. All right. Well, yeah, thanks for watching this movie with me, guys. It's one of my favorites. I mean, well, it is my favorite. And I, <laughs> I actually uh, got a tattoo of that Dance of Death, which is on my back. Really? No, I'm kidding. Like 25. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah, I, I always wonder that actually pretty about, sick. about Weird Catholic Twitter, how many tattoos are out there. <laughs> well, the taboo on showing any of yourself on Weird Catholic Twitter, I think, will prevent, prevent <laughs> that. All right, guys. Do we know what's coming up next week at all? <laughs> yeah, next week we're going to talk about gluttony, the good sin. It's the one we all love. The one officially endorsed by even the most orthodox of Catholics I know. And uh, I think it'll be extremely relevant um, to everyone's lives in our capitalist society. Yeah, we'll all get extremely drunk and uh, overeat right right ahead of time. Oh, yeah. We, for, for you, dear listener, I will, I, will, I will take sacrifices to prepare myself. Because <laughs> I care. All right, guys. All right, guys. All right. <laughs> This is this was a fun one. Thanks for choosing that. That was a good, good night. Choice. That was a good choice, Ab. All right, good night. Good night, guys. Men porten smal Det svarte dansar på stranden
mörkaste sjö. Dagen är röd, men fisken död. Det svarte hugar på stranden. Ormen flaxar i himmelens höj. Stand up, stand up, stand up, stand up.